Today, we are moving into our next king in this series on kings. We're talking about Uzziah, another one of everybody's favorites, right? We're all super familiar with Uzziah and and his career and what he did. Um, Maybe not, but Uzziah is a very interesting and uh, powerful story, especially for the purposes that we are using the stories of the kings. We are reflecting on the fact that God has given us what we have as an investment that he wants us to use for his purposes. And so, in a way, every one of us has the same role in God's kingdom that the kings of Israel and Judah did, because when we look at the kings, we see, just in a really tight focus, people who had a responsibility delegated to them that they were supposed to use for God's purposes. And we have a clear idea of how they were supposed to use them, and we are able to learn from their example the common pitfalls and opportunities of ruling uh, on God's behalf and of using the authority and the influence and the power, whatever it is that he's given us. Last week, we talked about Joash, and this was the family tree where we left it. You'll notice there's a lot of, a lot of knives. Um, there's been a lot of murder in the family trees. And um, Joash, his grandmother had massacred his entire family in order to try and steal the throne, but he was protected by his aunt and uncle, and they led a coup to put him back on the throne. And Joash led really well as long as he listened to his uncle until his uncle died, and then he took on some bad advisors, and then he actually ended up assassinating his the only person who would tell him the truth, his cousin, the son of his uncle, and everything went very badly, and he died. Um, and he, and he, he, his... Rain was in shambles when he died. Joash's son, Amaziah, followed him, and he went through a similar pattern where he started out really well and then went really poorly. And then Uzziah took over uh, as his son. And so we're skipping a generation to look at the reign of Uzziah, and we're going to look at the very common pitfall that Uzziah fell into as he ruled over God's kingdom. So here's where we start. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, which is a very long time. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Now remember, his father Amaziah only did what was right for the first part of his reign. So there's a limit to that. He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. During the time that he sought the Lord, God gave him a success. So, good start, but if you remember last week taught us to look for those conditions, as long as he listened to his teacher, he did well, right? So there's, there's a limitation to this. But at least to start off with, Uzziah started strong, ruling well under good advice. Now, Uzziah is a king in the ancient Near East, and so ruling well looked a particular way. In your life, you're not a king of an ancient Near Eastern kingdom, so ruling well looks very different. But here's what it looked like for him. It involved a lot of building things and winning wars. So he went out to wage war against the Philistines, and he tore down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod. Then he built cities in the vicinity of Ashdod and among the Philistines. So he defeated the Philistines and occupied their territory. God helped him against the Philistines, the the Arabs that lived in Gerbel, and the Mayonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for God made him very powerful." 
So this is a turn in Judah's fortunes where they are having success against their enemies and they're, where they're on the upswing. They're growing. They're, they're the power in the neighborhood. The northern kingdom is also doing really well, um, which is why he only expands southward. But Judah is doing great during this phase. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, and the corner buttress, and he fortified them. Since he had many cattle, both in the Judean foothills and the plain, he built towers in the desert and dug many wells. Fun fact, we've actually found some of those wells and towers with his seal on them. And since he was a lover of the soil, he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands. Uzziah had an army equipped for combat that went out to war by divisions according to their assignments, a powerful force to help the king against the enemy. Uzziah provided the entire army with shields, spears, helmets, armor, bows, and sling stones. That's significant because normally the soldiers were expected to bring their own supplies, their own um, swords and stuff. And so the fact that he can pay for them means he's really doing well. Uh, he made skillfully designed devices in Jerusalem to shoot arrows and catapult large stones for use in the towers and on the corners. So his fame spread even to distant places where he was wondrously helped until he became strong. All right, so Uzziah, in the measures of a king, is doing really, really well, right? He has defeated his enemies. He has built up his fortifications. He's invented some fancy new catapults. He has his own uh, ranch land that is owned by the crown, so he has his own revenue. He, has do, he is wealthy enough to provide his army with uniform supplies and, and give them all the fanciest swords and all that kind of stuff. He's doing really, really well. Why is he doing well? You may have noticed that I highlighted certain parts of that passage. Why is Uzziah doing well? Because he was helped by God. God blessed Uzziah with victories and power. Now, the author of Chronicles is very, very clear. Uzziah was helped by God. Why is Uzziah doing so well? Because of God. Okay? That's very important because that informs the way the story turns in the next verse. Okay? Because then it says, but, and each of these kings, this is a theme of Chronicles where most of the kings, they have a good beginning and a bad end, and that, that hinge is what goes bad, and that's where we learn, right? How do they go from good to bad? Let's try not to do that turn. And for him, the turn is, when he became strong, he grew arrogant and it led to his own destruction. Now notice that the author kind of gives away the plot right there in that sentence. It tells you how it's going to end without telling you what happened. How did he grow arrogant? What did he do? How did it lead to destruction? He gives away the ending right there. And I think, as I'm reading this, I think it's because he wants you to understand the significance of the story right in this moment. He wants you to really connect where, where Uzziah ends up with how he got to where he is. Because Uzziah grew arrogant, why? Because he grew strong. Why did he grow strong? Because God helped him. Okay? So Uzziah became arrogant specifically because of the power God had given him. 
You ever seen somebody who does this who brags about something that they have absolutely no control over or no authority over, they have no responsibility for? The way I imagine this, it's kind of, because this is obviously an attitude between Uzziah and God. It's kind of like your kids putting on airs because of the allowance you give them. Right? Like, hey, I'm in the money now. I'm an independent kid because I've got an allowance. And they're saying that to the people who give them their allowance. Right? But the Bible tells us these stories from God's perspective. A historian wouldn't have told you this, told it to you this way. A historian would have told you that Judah became prosperous and the king became uh, arrogant because the kingdom was prosperous. And that happens. Most kings get prideful when they're doing well. Most people get prideful when they're doing well. But the author of Chronicles wants you to recognize that he is getting arrogant over things that God gave him. Okay? He is getting arrogant. He thinks he's rich because of his allowance. Okay? And that's always a problem, but it's especially a problem because it's one thing if your kid put, like, when I was a kid, our allowance was based on her age. So if you were older, you got more of an allowance. Okay? So it would be one thing for my older brothers to lord over me that they have a bigger allowance. Right? It's another thing for my brothers to think that entitles them to something from my parents who gave them the allowance. Right? So it's one thing for us to be proud of what God has given us compared to people that God has given less to, right? But Uzziah, and that's wrong already, but Uzziah is going to take it in the most ridiculous direction he can, which is vertically. And we're going to laugh at him, and then we're going to realize we do the same thing. So be ready for that turn, right? Because it says, when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord God by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. So twice a day, someone would go in with incense and they would burn incense on the altar because the idea was that the, the temple would be full of this sweet-smelling smoke. And that smoke was meant to represent the presence of God. It was also meant to represent some kind of shield between you and God because God, is, you know, you experience his presence in the temple and as sinful as we are, experiencing God's presence unfiltered is a bad idea. It's like staring at the sun without sunglasses, right? So, so this is a very important thing that happens twice a day. They burn incense to keep the room full of this sweet-smelling smoke. But not the king. The king doesn't do this. So he goes in to do this, and the priests get very upset. The priest Azariah, along with 80 brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. They took their stand against King Uzziah and said, Uzziah, you have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have incense to the, uh, have the right to offer incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. God is not going to honor you for taking something he didn't give to you. God gave this job to someone else. And that's true. We can, we can verify that in the law of Moses. It says, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he, stands, when he tends the lamps. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. There is to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. It is given to Aaron and to Aaron's sons. So the descendants of Aaron, uh, to be high priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And they were the only ones who were allowed. 
You couldn't just be from the tribe of Levi, and you couldn't just be a priest. You had to be one, a descendant of Aaron. It says, you must not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt or grain offering. You are not to pour a drink offering on it. God says, there are very specific things I want you to do with this and who I want to do to handle it. Okay? And it's so specific that even being a descendant of Aaron doesn't entitle you to do whatever you want with the with the incense, because one of the first big episodes that happens with the tabernacle is that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they are entitled by, the, they are part of the family, they are the ones who are supposed to do it, but they do it the wrong way. The Hebrew says they offer strange fire. They did it wrong, and God killed them on the spot. That's how seriously God takes this. So even the people who are descendants of Aaron are not entitled to do whatever they want here. They ha- it has to be done God's way with the people God has called to do it. So what has happened with Uzziah, who is a king of Judah, who's supposed to be an expert in the law, he knows these things, right? He knows this history. But Uzziah has taken on an attitude of entitlement. He is a big deal. God is lucky to have him in charge of his people, because Uzziah's been doing it right. And you know what? He's entitled to a little respect. What has the high priest done to protect God's kingdom? What has the high priest done to make sure that the Philistines don't ransack the temple? Right? Uzziah is the one who made all this work. Uzziah is the one who's been obedient to God. Uzziah deserves to be in there in God's presence. Surely the blessings God has given Uzziah are proof that he is entitled to this role, that he is God's guy to get the job done, right? Look at what God has done for him, and clearly we can see that God wants him to do more. God wants him to do these things to which he feels entitled. So in his pride, Uzziah thought he was entitled to offer incense in the temple, now, this may seem like a minor ceremonial thing. Uh, and first of all, I would say when God gives a law, none of it's minor. Second of all, I would also say that I have experienced tendencies like this within the church that can be really destructive. Uh, when I finished seminary and I took a year off because I thought I was going to go into a PhD program and it didn't work out, I I went to a church and I helped lead their young adults program and we had this guy join the program who had been a Christian for like a year and a half and was convinced that he was supposed to be a pastor now. And so any group he was supposed to be, he was a part of, he should be involved in leadership. He should be involved in teaching. And I, I, don't, I, I obviously never handle anything perfectly. I may have been prejudiced by the fact that I just finished getting a master's degree in theology, but I kind of felt like since the elders had asked me to lead this group and I'd gotten done with all this education and all this studying and was burned with a lot of student debt as a result, maybe there was a difference in who had the responsibility here for leading this group. And he ended up causing tons of chaos until the elders actually had to sort it out because he wanted to lead everything because God had called him to be a pastor. And 
that's not just something that happens with people who think they're called to be a pastor. It's also something that happens with people who are pastors who will take that leadership and that responsibility in the wrong way. And we do this in all areas of life where we feel we just go ahead because I know what's right and I'm entitled to do what I think is supposed to happen and it's going to be my way. And it causes real problems. Even when we're looking at something as small as how you burn the incense in the temple. Seemingly small. And obviously God didn't think it was small because here's how he responded. Uzziah, with a fire pan in his hand to offer incense, was enraged. But when he became enraged with the priests, in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple, beside the altar of incense, a skin disease broke out on his forehead. Okay, this doesn't mean the same thing for us as it meant for them. But under the law of Moses, you are forbidden to be in the temple if you have a visible skin disease or you have touched someone with a visible skin disease and not bathed in between. You are not allowed on the grounds of the temple. You are not allowed to come in the courtyard let alone be inside the temple itself. There's a very important symbolism going on in which the temple is where God lives and God is life, and so there should be no death representing him. And a person, a priest going in there with, with a skin infection, a visible skin disease, has a marker of death, and it sends the wrong signal to the community about what, who God is. So you're not supposed to be there. You're not even supposed to be there if you've touched anyone with a skin disease. That's why they did the unclean thing. They didn't know about infection, but they knew that they weren't allowed to be in the temple if they had touched someone with a skin disease. So now he's in the temple, and it pops up on his forehead. And everybody panics. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests turned to him and saw he was diseased on his forehead. They rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had afflicted him. Everybody panics, right? So King Uzziah was diseased to the time of his death. He lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household governing the people of the land. He goes into quarantine, and a quarantine unlike anything any of us even have experienced. Right? Like, so his son takes over, right? but his son can never be in the room with Uzziah, because if he does, he's unclean. Right? Like Uzziah, the, the depth of this, uh, the, how severe this is, is extreme. He is now, he cannot be a part of anything, any part of the community of God. So he's still technically king, but his son reigns while he hides off in a shed, right? And Uzziah rested with his ancestors, and he was buried with his ancestors in the burial ground of the king's cemetery. For they said, he has a skin disease. His son Jotham became king in his place. So God struck Uzziah with a skin disease, making him unclean for the rest of his life, rendering him incapable not only of doing the things that he assumed he was entitled to in the temple, but also incapable of doing the job that God had actually delegated to him. He couldn't be king anymore either. He tried to be priest and king, and now he can't do either one. And here is the severity of what God did to him. This is really cool. This fascinates me. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Let me explain. Okay, so a couple centuries later, they, ex they, they expanded the boundaries of Jerusalem and they came to the royal cemetery and they found Uzziah and Uzziah was unclean. So they said, he can't be buried within the city 
So they exhumed his body and they moved it to a new graveyard and they buried him and they put this as the gravestone. And it says, here were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open. It's like out of the mummy, right? Like, do not open this grave. There's a curse inside. That is literally what that says. That's how big of a deal this was. And this is what Uzziah, who for, for, had a very long reign in Judah and was very, very prosperous and successful for most of it, this is how he's remembered. His grave had to be moved because it wasn't allowed in the city. And they left a warning so people wouldn't open it. That's the story of Uzziah. So the question is, what do we learn from Uzziah's story for our role in the kingdom of heaven? Don't light incense in the sanctuary unless you're asked. No. <laughs> the first thing I want you to hear, and this is important for us, what I, what I observe from Uzziah, it, it seems silly that Uzziah would try to do that when the lines for responsibilities were so clear. But what it reveals to me, because I don't think we should ever assume that people in the Bible were just cartoonishly evil or foolish. They make the same mistakes that we can make. Any one of us could make the same mistake. So what made him do something so foolish? What I observe in myself is that an entitled mindset is never satisfied. When my focus is on what I deserve, I will never be satisfied. On the one hand, I will probably always be greedy for more. And even when I'm not greedy for more, I am focused on protecting what I have. Because an entitled mindset, this should be a second line, write this next to it, an entitled mindset is also never secure. We're always afraid of losing what we have. Now, as I talk about entitlement, it is very possible that you are thinking about certain issues going on in our country today, and it is very likely that you are using that word to apply to the side you disagree with. Okay? And, I'm, and that, that goes both ways, all the ways. I'm not talking about one side or another of anything. I'm talking about the culture that we live in. Because what I see is that this, is, this mindset is something that we are tempted toward and something we are uh, indoctrinated with in our society throughout our lives. And it's because it comes from the, what I believe is the second most influential religious text in American culture. After the Bible. It goes the Bible and then the Declaration of Independence. And I'm not joking. The most influential statement about God and his purposes that has been made, the one that's most influential in our culture that isn't in the Bible is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is deeply ingrained into our attitude. We've actually talked about this this morning in our How to Read the Bible class. We were looking at what it says about how God created humankind in his own image. And someone said, well, that means he created us equal. Well, kind of. But when you bring in the word equal, you're implying competition, comparison. That the important thing there is about whether I have as much as you have. 
And the Bible doesn't actually introduce that idea of individual comparison. But what this tells us is that God has made us equal, so make sure that you're comparing yourself with each other so that you stay equal. Because he gave us rights, things that we are entitled to, that we can demand. And the quickest way to get a Christian to behave in an unchristian way is put them in a circumstance where they feel like their rights are being restrained. Because for some reason, we feel like when there's a contract between us, all of a sudden, I can treat you like less than a person. I may be great at loving the homeless person that I walk past on the street, but the, the person representing the airline whose flight just got canceled, I'm going to let them have it. Because I have expectations, I have entitlements. I was supposed to be somewhere on time, and they failed, and I was entitled to that flight. I was entitled to that customer service. That's one of the things we, we expect. I will always get good customer service, and we, we fail to treat the people we interact with on a daily basis as actual human beings. Because I'm entitled to my rights. Because that's the way God wants it. Because that's what this says. But in reality, the Bible tells us something diametrically opposed to this attitude. And that is that what we have is not an entitlement. It is a gift. Everything you have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift from God, not a right. We are not entitled to anything because we are creatures. We are created. We are created for a purpose. This is why the prophets like to compare us to pieces of pottery that are being molded. And how ridiculous would it be for a pot that can't mold itself, for a lump of clay that can do nothing but just lay there to say to the potter, hey, you made me wrong. That's not the role of the clay. James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Right? We looked at Uzziah, and we looked at the fact that the things he had were given to him by God, and so he was getting arrogant because of the things that were given to him by God. And the author really pointed that out. But when you turn to yourself and apply that to yourself, what we need to remember is every single thing you have is a gift from God. We talked last week about how there are no self-made people. Even the talents that you use to build yourself up, your intelligence, your strength, your coordination, whatever it is that you have, you didn't give yourself. God gave it to you everything you have. And so none of it is a right. None of it is an entitlement. Paul says, who made you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably not. But if you are, who made you that way? God. If you are the richest person in the room, you may think, well, I made myself that way. That is not true for a myriad of, myriad of reasons. But even if it, you got rich only by your own means, God gave you those means. God gave you those opportunities. Everything we have is from God. And when we recognize that those are gifts, because by definition, a gift is something you're not entitled to, Right? If we are not entitled to God's gifts, then they are a responsibility. They are a responsibility. One of the most humbling and 
in a way, maybe even scary statements that Jesus makes is this, especially if you're an American. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. I say that's especially true for Americans because we've been given more than most people who have ever lived. Just categorically, even our poorest people have more than most human beings who've ever lived. So we all fit into the category of those to whom much has been given. And what we will tend to do is say, look at how much God has given me. I must be a really big deal. When in reality, we're supposed to say, look at what everything, all that God has given me. He must want me to do a lot with it. I've been reading a, a book called The Imitation of Christ for one of my classes, and they talk about, <laughs> it's, a, it's a class for the people who are starting this doctoral program, and it was very wisely chosen, because what he says right at the beginning of the book is he says, don't get arrogant because of everything you know, of your wisdom or your education, because more is expected of people who know more. So I could take whatever education I get and say, well, this makes me the most knowledgeable, important person in the room, Therefore, everyone should listen to me. And as a human being, I will be tempted to take those attitudes. In reality, what I'm supposed to do is come into a room saying, man, God gave me a lot of opportunities and has given me a lot of education that I didn't pay for even. Even if we just talk about the monetary side of it, I didn't give it to myself. That's what the scholarship is about, that we've, the scholarship dinner, right? But even so, whatever he's given me means I have a responsibility to use that for the good of the church that I'm a part of. I have a greater responsibility to give of what I have. It's the same thing with wealth. You know why God doesn't just give everybody equal wealth? Because he, he gives more to some so they can use it for those who have less. God doesn't believe in compulsory redistribution of wealth. He believes in joyful, generous distribution he believes in those who have giving to others out of love and joy and a desire to be like Christ. That's why Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And here's what I want you to remember. There's a whole sermon could be preached on the way that ends because what he is saying is that the life of generosity is what is truly life. A life of entitlement where I'm always concerned about getting what I think I deserve and protecting what I think I deserve is not a good life. It is not a fulfilling life. It is not the life that we're made to live. It is a fearful, exhausting, unsatisfying way to live. But God wants us to share our gifts, not defend our rights. And when we do, that is the life that we're truly meant to live. That's participating in the life of God. That's participating in the life that doesn't end. The life that lives on the things I can hold on to for myself will end. But the life of God's generosity doesn't end. Now, I'll close with this thought. Where would we be if Jesus 
had an entitled mindset. Where would we be if Jesus, the one that we have all confessed is our Lord and Savior, who we all agree we should emulate, where would we be if he had held on to what he had? Paul tells us that we should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you, are you following the example of Jesus? Now, maybe you have never committed to following the example of Jesus. Maybe this is new to you. Today is the best day for you to commit to the kind of life that truly fulfills. So if God is laying it on your heart to give your life to Jesus, then today is the best day to do that. You can come forward during the final song. You can talk to Pastor Rachel or I after the service. If you're online, you can call the church or get in touch with a Christian that you know and trust. But don't let today pass without giving your life to Jesus. Maybe you have given your life to Jesus and you realize that you have still been holding on to your entitlements. You've been taking the gifts that God has given you and you've been concerned about protecting them, defending them, holding on to them, and you haven't been taking on a Christ-like attitude of generosity. Today is the best day for you to commit or recommit. Often we need to keep coming back to this change of attitude, of letting go of our entitlements and being generous like God. So I encourage you to recommit your life to that today if that's what God is putting on your heart. And maybe you're looking at this challenge of living life this way and you have no idea how to do it on your own. And I'll tell you, you're not supposed to. And we are a body of believers who do this together, who encourage each other and pray for each other and talk through our problems and study scripture together and do life as a community of believers pulling in the same direction. So we'd love for you to get more connected with our small groups and our classes to place your membership. If you haven't been baptized, we did a baptism last week. We'd love to see you get immersed into Christ. Whatever next step God is calling you to take, I'd encourage you to commit to that now. You can grab one of those cards in the seat back in front of you, hand it to me after the service, put it in the box, but don't let today pass without acting on the prompting that God's put on your heart. I ask you to stand as we sing our final song.